Section 4 of The Door of the Unreal by Gerald Biss. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Brighton Road, Part 4. I was up again at six the next morning, thoroughly refreshed, and was on the spot again by seven after an early breakfast. Fortunately, it was a lovely morning, bright and warm, with the sun shining, and it seemed to infuse a spirit of optimism which had been sadly damped by the weather and lack of success the day before into inspector mutton and his now considerable army of policemen and officials both in uniform and in plain clothes nothing i learnt had transpired in the night and we were doomed to another futile morning which led to nothing kicking our heels and reading the sensational articles in the london and brighton papers which ran to columns in each mainly imaginative journalese culminating in the trite assurance that the police had the matter well in hand but were not in a position at the moment to issue any statement fed up with doing nothing i returned to the house about noon for an early lunch hungry after my six-thirty breakfast and a long morning in the open air when i had finished i tried to settle down but somehow i could not and something seemed to draw me back to the spot irresistibly so whistling to my wire-haired terrier whiskers who was ever my constant companion in my perambulations round the estate, I decided to walk down through the woods, putting a flask and plenty of tobacco in my pockets, mindful of the discomforts of the previous afternoon, and leaving orders for Wilson to pick me up with a car in good time to meet Lincoln Osgood at Crawley. Anne volunteered to accompany me part of the way, and I was only too delighted to have her company. We walked through the gardens, examining the progress of the bulbs as we went, and let ourselves out into the park by the little gate at the corner, striking across diagonally to the left through the woods. About halfway where they are thickest, under half a mile to the left of the dower house, and suddenly start. I don't think I will come any further with you, dear, she said. I don't want to get amongst the crowd or go to the place itself. I agreed with her thoroughly and nodded my approval. I think I'll go across to the dower house and fetch Dorothy back to spend the afternoon with me. It won't be so lonely with you away. Quite a good idea, I assented heartily. I'll take you across to the bridle path and go that way. It's not much out of my way. Somehow I had a dislike of the idea of leaving her there alone in the thickest of the wood with the mystery of such strange things hanging over our heads and tragedy in the very air. So we took a half turn to the right with the instinct born of familiarity with our own woods, in which a stranger, once off the path, would have run a risk of losing himself irretrievably and wandering in a circle. Whiskers was trotting to heel according to habit, but about a hundred yards farther on he stopped suddenly and began to whimper excitedly, his ears pricked and his right paw off the ground, a way he had got if anything unusual interested him. "'What's wrong, old chap?' I asked, stopping and turning round to him. He made as though to cast to the left, and ran a few steps, and then halted, whimpering again. "'Good dog,' I said, little thinking of what was about to happen. "'Find it.' Off he darted, and ten yards away he stopped and looked back at me as though wanting me to follow. Then he began to dig furiously. Anne, full of curiosity, was after him instantly, and I was not far behind. And there we found Tony Bullingdon. He was practically hidden from sight in a short deep gully between two trees, half covered with last year's leaves, which the winds of the winter had swirled and collected into this small hole, little bigger than himself, into which he had fallen. 
while between the dead leaves, dank with rain, and the color of his great motor-coat, he was practically invisible a few feet away. And that is, I suppose, how it had happened that he had been overlooked in the search, which had, of course, been very difficult in the thickest part of the woods. He was lying on his right side, and only the left portion of his face was visible, white and bloodless, and his left arm lay unnaturally limp half behind him. His coat was torn on the shoulder, which was badly lacerated with the blood congealed. His forehead, too, was badly cut, and upon closer examination he appeared to have been roughly handled or dragged across the ground and abandoned, but it was impossible to say how much was due to having been thrown from the car, though, as has often been proved, the steering wheel, which had unmistakably marked his chest, had probably broken the fall. His heavy coat, which had also probably protected him considerably, was all torn and filthy, and he proved to be a mass of bruises from head to foot when we got him home. Anne gave a little involuntary scream, and Whiskers continued digging at the leaves furiously until I called him off. I bent down and examined him. He was icy cold and absolutely unconscious, but his heart was beating faintly, and I thanked God that I had slipped my flask into my pocket. I tried to raise him gently and forced a little whiskey between his clenched teeth, but he moaned painfully, and I realized that his collarbone was broken, if not his whole shoulder-blade shattered. However, I managed to get my arm underneath to lift him a little, then I ran my hands gently over him, opening his motor-coat, and found to my satisfaction that, owing to the leather lining, he was not so saturated underneath as one would have expected. Bar his left shoulder and collarbone, I don't think there is anything broken, though I am not sure a couple of ribs on his right side, as I daren't turn him over alone, I said to Anne, who was standing by, pale but self-possessed. His right ankle is badly sprained, too. I can't move him by myself in case I do any damage. I'll wait here while you go for help, she said calmly, and nervous as unhappy as I felt at the idea of leaving her alone, I saw at once that there was no other way out of it. The nearest policeman keeping people off is only just over half a mile away, I said, assenting. I won't be more than a few minutes. I'll send him on to Mutton for a bearer party and the doctor, and come straight back to you. Rub his hands gently with some whiskey from my flask, I added, loosening the laces of his brogues and pouring some spirit into them as I spoke. I will leave whiskers to guard you. Then, without another word, I made off, as fast as the trees permitted, in the direction of the bridle path. I found the man without difficulty, and dispatched him hot-foot to Inspector Mutton, and it was not much more than a quarter of an hour before I was back again. To my surprise, I found that Anne was not alone, and recognized through the trees as I drew near the strange figure of the professor in his gray fur cap and coat. Anne was seated on the ground with young Bullingdon's head in her lap, and the professor was busy doing his best to bind up the shoulder and collarbone with strips of what I perceived as Anne's petticoat. His large, sharp pocket-knife lay on the ground, and he had cut off the clothing in the way, and was working skillfully and deftly with his curious long fingers, which had always fascinated me. The poor young man, he exclaimed, looking up for an instant as I approached. I was taking a ramble through your woods. Trespassing as usual, I could not help thinking a trifle grimly, when I heard your dog bark and then growl, so I came in this direction, and it was all Miss Clemping could do to keep him quiet. Frankly, I did not care a damn about his explanation, as I saw he knew his job and was the right man in the right place at the moment. His collarbone is broken, 
and the shoulder has been put out and possibly broken. He went on as he worked. But it is so swollen that I can hardly tell. Two right ribs fractured. Then he began endeavoring gently to restore the circulation. Give me some more whiskey out of your flask. Then he slipped off his fur coat and wrapped it round the poor unconscious white-faced boy, for which I could have blessed him. Miss Anne had better go back to the house and get a bed aired and ready and a big fire lit, he continued, speaking as one accustomed to give orders. And you can roll your jacket up and make a pillow for his head in place of her lap. Yes, I said, speaking for the first time, as I helped Anne up, shifting his head as little as possible. Run home, Anne, dear, and get everything ready. Telephone to Handcross and Crawley for doctors immediately, and send Jevons and Wilson and anyone else handy along as fast as possible with brandy, blankets, pillows, and the big luggage barrow with a mattress on it. Don't forget my first aid case. Anne was as pale as a lad on the ground, but quite calm, and I pressed her arm encouragingly. I won't be long, was all she said as she started off in her quick, athletic way, and I knew instinctively that everything would be ready. It will be touch and go, said the professor, not stopping in his work as he talked, especially if pneumonia supervenes, but he is young, and the exposure was not so great as it might have been, owing to his heavy leather-lined coat. His head is a bit bruised, but the cut on his forehead is not as serious as it looks. I could not but feel grateful to him for his psychological appearance and all that he was doing, and I thanked him perhaps a little inconsequently. He only shrugged his shoulders. It is lucky my afternoon walk took me this way, he said as calmly as though it were an everyday occurrence. The police called at the Dower House on their search yesterday, and that was the first I had heard of this extraordinary event. Of course, I could not help them at all. But this afternoon I thought I would go down to the scene of the accident, or whatever it was, and see if they had found anything. Yes, it was fortunate. Chafe his left foot, please. He spoke perfect English, but with a strong guttural accent, and I obeyed him instinctively, feeling that he knew what he was about. It was less than half an hour before Inspector Mutton arrived with four policemen and a couple of CID men, and I told them exactly what had happened, explaining also the lucky accident of the professor's presence. Mutton was obviously in a state of suppressed excitement, but distinctly disgruntled that the discovery had not been made by the police, and he said very little. He stooped down and picked up the pieces of Bullingdon's motor coat, jacket, and underclothes, which the professor had cut to bits with his sharp knife in slitting them off the body. "'You say the cloth was all torn and lacerated, sir?' he asked, turning to me. I nodded. "'They will afford us precious little clue now,' he said ungraciously, as he examined them. "'They have all been hacked to pieces, and no one could draw any deductions from them in the state they are.' "'It was necessary,' intervened the professor sharply, showing his white teeth a little angrily. "'There are occasions when you cannot wait for the police while you are doing their work.' It was put rather brutally, and Mutton took the rebuke with obvious bad grace and turned on his heel, busying himself with orders to his men and a consultation with the detectives from Scotland Yard in an undertone. And I felt that, if ever he could do the professor a bad turn and get his own back for the snub in front of his own men and the most important representatives from London, it will be done with his whole heart. It was nearly an hour after Anne had left us that I heard Jevons calling through the wood and the waiting seemed interminable. And after that, it was frightfully slow and difficult work carrying Bullingdon down through the close trees to the luggage barrow. 
Several times the poor chap groaned, but the professor, who unasked had undertaken the direction of operations to the chagrin of mutton, took little notice. A good sign, was all he said. At last we got him as comfortable as possible on the barrow, and hearing from Jevons that the doctors were on their way, the professor turned to me and bade me good afternoon without taking the slightest notice of anyone else. Then I can be of no further service, he said, as coolly as though he were leaving a tea party. So there is no need for me to accompany you. I will resume my fur coat, if I may, as the patient is now wrapped in blankets, and I am rather susceptible to chills. I only trust that I have not got one myself. I helped him on with his treasured coat, and thanked him again, not, however, without a certain reaction at his apparent callousness and readiness to shift further responsibility, but I really had no particular desire for his presence at the house with my own doctors available. He waved his hand to me, turned on his heel, and swung off with his peculiar long stride as our little cavalcade started on its slow and weary progress. It took what seemed an interminable time to get back to the house in our endeavor not to shake or jolt Bullingdon more than was unfortunately unavoidable. And when we got there, we had to get him upstairs, fortunately a wide staircase, and into bed. Everything was ready, and two doctors waiting, and Anne instinctively fell into the role of head nurse, for which she was well fitted, not only by nature, but by, of course, of first aid, which she had insisted upon after leaving school. So it was a quarter past five, before I found myself down in the hall again, and as I rang for Jevons to bring me a large whiskey and soda, I remembered for the first time that I had forgotten all about Lincoln Osgood and meeting his train. End of section four.